This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 461 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Nick Merrick. Now, unlike many of my guests who have transitioned out the military, Nick is still an active Green Beret. And what makes his story unusual is he started his nonprofit Green Beret Racing while still serving. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, the casualties that we saw in the first few years of the Iraq and Afghani conflicts, the mental health crisis, drug prohibition, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, and hit subscribe. Leave feedback if you feel like you want to leave a message, and most importantly, leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free resource, a free library of over 460 amazing minds. So all I ask is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick Merrick. Enjoy. Well, Nick, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time between training to uh, come on the Behind the Show podcast today. Thanks for having me on. You know, this is uh, it's one of the bigger ones that I've gotten a chance to do. Done some research and you've talked to some people that definitely have, have gotten out there and done stuff. So I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, no, well, it's, it's interesting because I've had a lot of people on from your community, but most of them, not all, but most of them are, you know, recently retired or have transitioned out for a while. Um, but you are one of the few I've had that's still in as well. So it's a kind of interesting perspective, you know, that, that you're doing what you're doing with the organization that you, you know, that started while still doing the job as well. So it's going to be an interesting conversation. So I won't ask where you are geographically now, but where are you usually based? Uh, Fort Carson, Colorado, out of 10 Special Forces Group. Beautiful. All right. Well, I'd like to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Boy, that's going to be a long conversation in itself. <laughs> uh, born in Iowa, uh, small little town. Um, two uh, parents that divorced when I was three. Um, my dad left for, for appropriate reasons. And I lived with my mom for the next uh, five years until... Enough stuff happened with uh, with my mom's custody that my dad finally got full custody of me. Moved out with him, lived on a, an acreage in the middle of nowhere. I grew up on a dead-end dirt road, five houses on the road, you know, backed up to a creek and a horse farm, and uh, spent most of my free time before I could drive, uh, you know, rummaging and, and walking as far as that creek would take me to see what was going on. And then once I could drive, I spent those years tuning and racing snowmobiles and tuner cars around uh, <laughs> river bends in, in small town, Iowa. Joined the army at 17. Um, first duty station was Fort Wainwright, Alaska. 
Got there in 2003. Shortly after, took off to Iraq. Did the uh, the infamous 172nd Striker Brigades tour, where we were extended at the very end of our tour. Um, we had people that were already back in Alaska. Uh, I'd already sent my bags home, and we found out on CNN three days out that we uh, we were extended to another four months there. It's a fun place to find out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have anything. I had a, I had a backpack with a, a uniform and two sets of PTs, and that that was all. And we moved down to Baghdad, and that uniform got very ripe very quick. You know, it was August of 2006 that happened. Um, it was a uh, most of that tour was pretty good. And then at the end of it, I lost two really good friends of mine within four days. Um, that I didn't know for, for probably 10 years that that really truly affected me. And that goes into the heart of what I started later. But the, the post deployment, I went to selection immediately after that got selected, went to the Q course, uh, started in 2008, graduated 2009, First duty station was 1st Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group in Stuttgart, Germany. Did a couple years and a couple Afghan trips over there. Um, came back to uh, what we call 10th Main, the, the headquarters for 10th Group in uh, Fort Carson, Colorado. And since then, uh, I've deployed a, a lot, gone through a marriage, um, lost some more friends, and kind of done stuff in, in three or four different AORs under different mission types and whatnot. And really that all led me to uh, a life journey of starting, starting something that nobody else can control. And, and by that, I mean, I, I made goals that were, they were geared towards things that I had primary control of. This wasn't, Oh, I'm going to attend this school or, I'm going to, I'm going to seek out this thing that somebody else has to say yes to. Instead, it was, I'm going to do things that I have to say yes to that other people really can't affect. And I did that and I, I made four goals for myself. And those four goals were I was going to start a business. I was going to buy a house. I was going to stay in the army because at the time I was going through a divorce and wasn't sure if I was going to. And then I was going to transition to become a warrant officer. Uh, within, within a week, I had the business formed. Within a month, I had uh, I had the house bought and I had reenlisted. And almost two years from that time, I had uh, graduated from the warrant course, and it sent me on this different path of what is it that I can do that is the best for me that I can't I can't blame on somebody else if it doesn't work. Uh, that kind of took me down a path where I ended up working with Ignacio Garza, the founder of the Special Forces Foundation and helped him stand that up. And I found a, a passion or almost a calling within that realm as I had spent at that time, the past nine years straight on operational detachments and different continents, different, uh, different types of um, conflicts and, and mission sets and all that kind of stuff that I, I got to see a lot of what the regiment has to offer and also a lot of the pain that, we, we tend to see and, and hide things that go into a deeper culture within our actual, our actual ingrained DNA of the teams. And I realized that there's a lot of things that need to be done that weren't getting done because either we were putting them off or we weren't recognizing them. 
And that kind of drove me forward, fast forward from that. And I'm entered into a desert race in Las Vegas, Nevada with a good friend of mine called the Mint 400. It's the largest off-road race in America, hopefully 60,000 spectators. And we showed up, got into a vehicle that we had never driven before, took it to the starting line and placed third in our, our category through a lot of a lot of pain. You know, a 12-hour race, we had two major uh, brakes on the vehicle, three electrical failures, and that's not us being fantastic drivers, just more of us not stopping. And that ultimately started what we were doing with what we're doing now with the race team. Well, that's an amazing journey you've gone through. And just to hit on something that you said about going in a direction where you didn't need someone else's permission. I can relate completely because I worked, you know, as you in, in a kind of governmental in, you know, infrastructure. And one of the most frustrating things was, as you said, getting approval from someone else to do something, even if that thing that you're trying to do is going to greatly positively affect the safety, the health, whatever it is of, of people that you work with. And so by starting this podcast and, and transitioning out of the fire service, I found that so liberating. I know you're still in the military now, but creating your own path, not needing a media company or a business or you know anything like that to kind of rubber stamp what you're doing, but to actually put it all on your shoulders and own that entire journey and be accountable for that journey, I think is, is incredibly empowering when you're in a very regimented structure for your normal job. You know, I... I had a conversation when I was a, a really young NCO with one of my company commanders that resonated with me. He had just told us that we are, we're, we're some dumb detail, I forget what it was, something that had to be done. He was a, a fairly new commander, and I uh, took it upon myself, being a, an audacious or just a pretty much an idiot, I think, some days. And uh, I went into his office, and I was like, sir, I, I think you're making a, a mistake. Like, why are we doing this? And, he asked me to shut the door and he said, Nick, if I tell you guys to do something that is dumb, I have already fought it. because I've already fought it and we're still in the military. If I'm still told to do it, we have to do it, but I'll be damned if I let somebody else take the blame or the credit for a decision. I'm your commander. Therefore, I'm going to give you your order. And that kind of resonated me in the sense that if you take, take admission into a, a college, Right. If that's if that's your goal and you you do as good as you can in all of your classes and you submit, say you want to get into Harvard. If you don't get into Harvard, that's not necessarily on you. That's a place that you can place blame. However, if you want to get out of debt, that's on you. There, there's nobody else really to blame in that situation. So take charge of it in the way that, that he said, like, why am I going to cast blame somewhere else or, or let somebody else take credit? And by that same reason, nobody else can take credit for you getting out of debt. If you get into college, that's awesome. But there's a lot more that's at play there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, going back to your early childhood, something that's really been revealed to me you know, over the last few years is the impact of childhood trauma on how it manifests in the uniform professions, whether it's first responders, whether it's military. And it's a, it's a very, very 
rarely discussed element of the PTSD or PTS, you know, discussion. Um, so there you were, you know, you were kind of bouncing from household to household as a younger boy yourself. You mentioned about custody battles. When you look back now, having seen, you know, the, the issues that some of your brothers have been, you know, dealing with, what elements of your childhood do you attribute or do you recognize any areas of that that, that contributed to you struggling later when, when you lost some of your friends? You know, I, I think the, the struggle when I lost my friends didn't, it didn't happen right away. You know, I, I, I attribute that to my childhood. Having, I, I grew up in a very abusive childhood or household with my, my mother and her, her boyfriends. And I think I learned as a, a child to compartmentalize. Because, you know, if you, if you dwell on that, then you can't have fun as a child. And if you can't have fun as a child, then what's the point of being a child, really? You know, I, on one side, I had a very abusive household, but also I had a very absent mother. So the ability to leave and kind of go about and do what I wanted was, was there. So I think you fast forward to when, when my friends were, were killed, uh, those two specifically really close to each other. And I think I, I went back to that, that childhood area where my mind said, hey, we still have life to live. Put that away for now. And the problem is that I personally believe I didn't address it again. I just assumed that I was good to go. And after a decade, it, it finally reared its head. And I didn't realize that I was, I was that emotionally distraught about something that had happened a decade before. And I, I firmly believe that my childhood directly played on that of me compartmentalizing it and kind of just overlooking it. Now, Changing you know, the the perception a little bit, what elements of that childhood, obviously, as you said, sometimes that was it was quite a rough upbringing, contributed to you being successful physically and mentally in the military, especially the selection for the uh, special operations. I believe with with special operations, the the selection portion is everybody harps on the the physicality of it. And it's tough. You should absolutely be in shape, and if you're not in shape, it's going to make it more difficult but the ability to think through situations when when pain is introduced you know whether it be physical pain or emotional pain or, or whatever it is, is is really at the heart i, I believe of a, a special operation a successful special operations individual so growing up and and dealing with those situations and being able to to kind of move it to the back of my mind and think well what's next how do i get out of this situation or what do i have to look forward to I think really kind of can set me up for success and the ability to sit there, you know, on multi-mile movements with lots of weight and other individuals that that are of the same, most of them of the same caliber, obviously with selection, so it might be a little different, but the the same mindset and just being, you're, you're, you're cold, you're tired, you're hungry, you're in pain, you're about the, the worst circumstances without actually being, you know, flogged or, you know, really tortured that that we actively put ourselves in and the ability to think in those moments is really what I think sets somebody up for success, whatever job it's in. Absolutely. Now you mentioned about joining the army at 17. Was that something you always dreamed of when you were in the school age? Nah, not even close. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was a, I was a decent student uh, growing up. It was, I, I'm a, I was the third youngest kid in my high school class. Uh, Decent size school. I think I graduated with 
300 or so, somewhere in that area. Decent size, decent size class, especially for Iowa. And I was going into my senior year and we had a JR OTC program, a junior reserve officer training corps, which are only reserved for the most pristine and premier high schools, which is not even close to true. It was generally put in the, the really bad schools. <laughs> um, but I enjoyed it and I kind of had a hard look at my, my father's current employment and he, he did really well for himself. You know, we were, we were probably lower middle class, if not middle class um, at the time. I didn't pay as much attention, but the fact that I could get by without paying attention to it probably means that we were sitting, you know, comfortably in the middle class. But I, I thought, you know, I, I can't get an academic scholarship. I carried a 3.0 average when I, I graduated, which isn't anything stellar. It's not bad, but it's definitely not academic worthy for a scholarship. And then I looked at, you know, okay, I don't play any instruments. And then sports, I, at the time, thought that I was just run-of-the-mill average. Um, so I said, I'm, I'm probably not going to get a, a sports scholarship. That, that changed the next season when we got a new football coach in. But I, I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I don't want to live in the same hometown that, you know, for the rest of my life, I want to do something. And we talked over the military. And three days after I turned 17, he drove me down to Des Moines, Iowa, and I enlisted in the delayed entry program, which turns into a, a funny story. I was, uh, we got a new football coach in that year. He decided that he liked uh, tight ends that could receive, you know, catching tight ends as opposed to blocking tight ends, which was my position, and gave me a whole lot more play. And a couple games into the season, he comes to me and he says, hey, Nick, uh, Iowa is in the stands. I said, oh, that's cool, coach. He says, no, idiot, they're here to see you. I'm like, coach, I'm, I'm in the Army. Like, I don't care. <laughs> so this happens. A couple other colleges come out. You know, of course, I tell them no because I talked to my recruiter. And my recruiter's like, no, nah, man, you're, you're in the military. Man. You can't get out of that. Having no knowledge of what actually is going on. Thinking, you know, recruiters are honest people. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I've heard uh, enough military stories to understand why that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, um, Fast forward, I'm in airborne school, uh, right out of basic training. I have this lieutenant that is staring at me. And I'm a, I'm a private first class at the time. I'm an E3. And he, he's just staring at me. And again, said this is probably going to be a recurring theme. You know, privates don't generally talk to officers. But he'd been staring at me long enough that I walked up to him. I was like, sir, can I help you? And he's like, where are you from? I said, I'm from Iowa. And he said, Waterloo East. And I was like, yeah, that's me. Are you like, yeah, how'd you know that? And he goes, I wrote an article on you. You were one of the top tight end prospects in America. Why are you here? And I explained to him the, the whole story. And he looked at me with this sad smile. And he's like, man, your recruiter absolutely lied to you. You could have gotten out of that contract for anything. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, here we are. Damn. So did that actually kind of rock you for a little bit? It, it did. Because I was at that time where physical prowess was my identity. You know, I was, you know, I'm 6'4". Currently, I'm about 230, 240. I'm not a, an average-sized person. And I held a lot of stock in my, my physicality as a, a young man, how fast I could run, how, how many pounds I could do on this or, or whatnot. And, you know, learning that there was a, a potential that I could have gone and played football at the next level, you know, that definitely hit me. But the more... 
the more I've come to grow into who I am and what I'm good at, the more I look at it and say, you know, had I gone that path, I don't know what would have been put in front of me, but where I'm going now, I, I like the potential, the, 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 the forecast, if you will, of, of will of where I can potentially get to and what I'm currently doing. So as it's going on, I, I, I get bothered by it less and less. Now, with you taking a lot of stock on your physicality, with you ultimately seeking out a, what I would call a protector profession, was there an element when you look back of that young, vulnerable child around, you know, that abuse when you were, when you were, you know, an age you couldn't def- defend yourself, you know, your mother, whoever it was, and that driving you into being the, the, you know, the kind of epitome of the protector now? You know, I, I, I probably I'm, I'm put a lot of thought into my childhood directly relating to that. But in high school, I was, a, I guess you could say, more of a, a counter bully, if you will. You know, there the typical rousings and, and whatnot, but I typically, I, I hung out with a lot of my friends. I was a, I was a nerd in high school, in, in a sense, or a geek, or whatever is politically correct now. You know, I, I played... Magic the Gathering before football practice. You know, I was, most of my friends were on the band team. <laughs> and uh, I hung out with all of the groups that, you know, a captain on the football team is not supposed to play. You know, it's not supposed to hang out with. So you would, you would often find me in our, our cafeteria with all of these fantasy cards, you know, Magic the Gathering sprayed, you know, sprayed out, playing with my friends who are not of the, the physically inclined type. And then... You know, ending that game and walking directly into the weight room. So I, I think I was probably bound to get into something that was a little different than the norm just from the start. And a lot of that's probably based on my childhood. You know, when you're when you, when you deal with adults in your life and you can't defend yourself, you spend a lot of time in your head, a lot of time fantasizing about things. And I rarely went down the route of Hey, I'm going to do something, you know, nefarious, or I'm going to do something really mean to these people. Instead, my fantasies went more towards, man, what is it like to skydive? And that's probably why I was destined to just not stay in that area, and probably why I asked my dad to to, to sign papers so I could leave. See, I find that this this part of the conversation is so fascinating, how it kind of unfolds later on. Because there's so many people in, in your profession, in, in my profession that, you know, have just a spectrum of childhood. Some, some, the trauma was being the middle child and, and just feeling completely unloved. For others, obviously, it was a lot more physical and, and abusive than that. But, and then there's some that, that had, you know, I would say a very, uh, great upbringing, but, you know, where the family unit was good and mom and dad were there and they both cared and loved. And, you know, that served as a, as a positive element as well. But, um, you know, without us telling these stories, without us kind of looking back and seeing these formative years, how did they impact who we came today, who we became today? It, it just, I find it absolutely amazing. So even for me, like I, I was in a house fire when I was four. I hadn't thought about that for decades. And then when I started writing a book last year, it kind of popped out of my head and I'm like, oh shit, that's probably why I became a firefighter then. <laughs> well, getting to your deployment, um, one thing that I like to ask, you know, there's, there's a couple of things, kind of reoccurring questions now that I like to ask people that have actually been in combat. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and the reason I ask this is, 
the vast majority of people in this country have never served. You know, my, my associated professions, we serve at home, but we've never been overseas. We've never been asked to kill for our country, you know? So, um, we get a very polarizing view of war. And I use this example every time I kind of post this question, either the kind of kill them all, let God sort them out mentality or the you're all baby killers mentality, you know, and there's the real world is the human beings, the boys and girls, these post high school, basically still children that we're asking to go overseas and be dropped into a war zone to defend, you know, whatever it is that we're sending them there for. So what I like to tease out is the actual human, you know, experience that these men and women actually um, go through and see so that we can get a perspective of what it was actually like to be a soldier, a sailor, a Marine, whatever it was. When you were sent there, regardless of any kind of, you know, understanding of politics, you know, whatever it was, you find yourself in, you know, a combat zone. Were there any moments when you first got there that you realize, okay, I'm here now. I was sent because of, you know, reason X, but now I see with my own eyes, these horrible things that are happening to these people in their own country. And now I understand that there is work to be done to, to get rid of this evil. Did you have any kind of aha moments early in your career like that? Yeah. Um, we were, we were based primarily in the first year out of Mosul. Uh, so we, we based out of the fob by the name of Bob courage. We ended up closing that down, but um, we were on a, a routine patrol just going through and we would we'd go into courtyards, we'd knock and enter, and we were at this phase in, in 2005 where it was started very very much less kinetic. You know, the the, the militias and the, the insurgents hadn't found a solid base yet to fight us. And well, you know, the striker units were we were very mobile, so it was a very difficult thing. They they fought us a lot more with drive-by shootings and IEDs. So there weren't many stand-up fights. You know, we got into some war down in Baghdad, but Mosul itself had some, but it was a, a far less, you know, prolonged firefight type campaign. So what command had us do with these presence patrols where our, our vehicles would go and they would section off an entire an entire block of, of a neighborhood. And we our company would clear that that neighborhood. Well, we'd go in and we'd go from house to house and we'd knock, and this wasn't a very it was an intrusive, but it wasn't nearly as off, you know, offensive. You know, we had we had the demolition charges and the means to blow doors down and go in and do stuff at our will. However, that wasn't the 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 means by which we were trying to achieve victory in that area. We were just trying to find stockpiles and you know holdups and places with intel. So we we went into this this town. It was on the outskirts of Mosul. Very small. I remember we were walking down, still all dirt roads. Most of the buildings aren't fully built yet. And we're just uh, in a column and we end up going into one of the, the buildings. And when we go in, there's a cage inside this building that had a, um, a mentally handicapped kit that was malnourished. Just absolutely. You could tell they did not take care of him at all. And he's seen more as like a blight upon their, their family, but they couldn't bring themselves to do whatever it was that was traditionally custom uh, a traditional custom in that, that country. And I remember looking at that and thinking back to how, how can people lock a human in a cage? And it, it kind of dawned on me because this is within the first two months of us being there. You know, the first month you have no clue what you're doing there, you know, especially on your first deployment. You're, you're still trying to learn what the city is. You're trying to figure, you know, make sure that you've memorized all of your ROEs. 
you know, in that time you get shot at for the first time and your first IEDs, like you're, you're really starting to try to piece things together. And that was a, a wake up for me because it really hammered down that this was a different culture and a different look, something that, you know, if it was done in the U.S., this wouldn't just be frontline news. Like you would be hung, you know, hung from the gallows like this just isn't allowed. So as I started to think about that, we, I started to inquire more about the, the mindset of our enemy. You know, why are they doing this? Because now, you know, you go forward more and more and all of a sudden now the um, Jays Almaty are, are starting to, to rise up and we have more people to actually fight. You know, um, Sartre's guys were, um, were actively now pursuing us. So we're starting to get more and more engaged. And it wasn't until November, uh, what was it? November 19th, 2005, I'd been embedded for some missions with, a, with an ODA. And it was a third group team. The, uh, the team sergeant, Master Sergeant Tony Yost, was just a phenomenal human. That I, since I've come into SF, I've gotten to, to speak to people that knew him, uh, and not from a, a bias standpoint. But he was everything I thought he was. You know, when I was a young E4 at the time, getting to talk to an E8 who I, you know, Green Bray, who I thought knew everything in the world, and. On November 19th, we get called to a uh, to cordon off an area, and I'm on a, a machine gun post. And I had just gone out on a mission with with Tony, and I he was the one that cemented me going to uh, to become a Green Beret. But uh, they get called in to go into a house that our Bravo company had attempted to enter. Uh, they had booby trapped the whole house. They had machine guns set up. They were getting grenaded while they were in the house, and it was just a straight death trap. They, they wanted people to come in. So Tony leads a charge of something like 41 Iraqi police into, or Iraqi army, I forget which one, into the house. And I'm on a machine gun. I'm about three houses down from it watching, you know, the backside of this thing and the house explodes. And uh, in that moment, vividly, as I watch the, the roof lift off this building, you know, there's no sound to me. Like, everything is like, it's it's slow. Uh, I forget the the term for it, tachysplasia or, or something like that. But everything was slow, and there was no sound. And I can still visualize it today. But in that moment, I, I lost a, a, who I consider to be a friend, and it dawned on me in that part that they don't fight the same way either. You know, they were willing to draw people into a house just to blow it up, and that was a completely different mindset than what we're used to seeing here in, here in America, even if people have problems with the, you know, the, the police, they're not drawing them in just to blow the house up on the cops. You know, there are other means and whatnot, but that was a very culturally different thought to look at our enemy through a lens. So now I'm, you know, I'm 19, I'm in a country or I'm 20 in a country that locks its mentally handicapped people in cages, essentially puts them on display in the living room and it also has people that are so that are so ideolog ideologically different that they're willing to draw, you know, people that are there into their house just to blow it up with them in it. And that was a that was a pretty big wake up call for me. Oh, I'm sure. And it's funny, but the special needs story I've heard that multiple times now. You know, it's just it is. You know, there's an element where no matter what your background is and the way you're brought up, there should be that inherent part of you that identifies when you're 
philosophy is causing harm and pain to others, you know, and when that line's crossed, it's kind of hard to to really wrap your head around how you can get to that point. Agreed. So conversely, the other thing I like to tease out is a lot of these men and women and children in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria, wherever, you know, wherever these conflicts are, are just normal people trying to go about their life whilst in the middle of a combat zone. Were there any stories of, um, of humanity, of, of compassion and kindness that you witnessed amongst this battle zone that you were working in? You know, one of the, one of the things that I found to be very different in this, this war zone, and take Afghanistan, for instance, is that, that that country has been the invading ground for so many empires. You know, they say it's the, you know, the grave site of, of empires that I don't think they, they know how to deal with anything other than the war happening. So we had a, an interpreter in, 2010 that uh, we call him Sam fantastic guy and you'll hear you'll hear some teams talk about interpreters that we have that are foreign you know they're a local national you know they're they're not vetted for anything other than their ability to speak the language you know they can speak English and they can speak the, the local dialects and this guy was got to the point where he was so trusted that we were all right giving him a weapon to defend himself. You know, we weren't giving him grenades or, or anything like that, but we were fine with it. And this guy had such a knack for joining with the team that he was willing to step up and, and fight with us side by side. You know, by all accounts, we are foreign invaders on his soil. And here he is believing in what we're doing. But on the same side of that, we would go into a village and you would see this, this man that has zero problems standing next to a whole bunch of, you know, primarily white guys, you know, fighting people in his land. And he would leave his truck, his gun in the truck, and he would walk into a, a village and sit down and, and talk to these people and tell a completely different story than what, you know, the, the narrative is typically from, you know, Taliban or Al Qaeda that, you know, we're just invaders there to impress or oppress. And you would see this, this really this act where he would be able to, to talk, because we had less successful interpreters as well, but he would be able to talk to people and understand what's going on in that village. And we would be able to render aid in ways of everything from, you know, getting a water well dug to getting food and supplies. And we got generators for some of these, um, these villages to, to help them because they're living so far in the mountains that power lines aren't run there. And I, I found it to be an odd contrast that you could see somebody take both vantage points, you know, as opposed to just absolute hatred, which I've seen of, of locals of both sides, you know, hating us completely, no matter what we do or people that we've worked with that hate locals that much. But this, this man was, was able to, kind of bridge that gap in a way that isn't common. It, it's, it was respected. We really respected this guy. We helped him get his U.S. citizenship later, actually. Beautiful. That's such a powerful story. Um, I had a, a gentleman, Fahim Fazli, who is originally from Afghanistan. He actually is an actor as well. He was even in uh, 12 Strong. But he did the same thing. He le left his acting career and joined, was attached to the Marines for, I think it was three years, 
um, doing exactly what you said as well. So, I mean, the heroism of some of these men and women out there that are assisting, you know, forces in their own country, I think is, is incredible. And you mentioned about the polarizing hate. Well, you can return to U.S. soil in this last 12 months and see the, you know, the horrific results of that too. You know, it, uh, the one, when I, when I try to talk to people about special operations and what it's like in a team room, you know, I, I can honestly say that for the vast majority of everything that I have seen within our ranks, we don't really care about most stereotypes. You know, they're, they're points that we make so much fun of because at the end of the day, you know, James, I have, I have four kids. And my biggest concern are, is, is twofold. One, are you good enough to do your job to the standards of the detachment? Not me. You know, are you good enough to be on the team and do your job? And then secondly, can I trust you to get me home to my kids? And if that's the case, that you're good at your job and I can trust you to get home, I haven't seen an outright act of discrimination of any kind within special operations. I, I haven't. I've been doing it for a while now because those are the primary concerns. So when we see this polarizing in in really in anywhere, it just shows me that they haven't been exposed to a situation, the people that are expressing they haven't been exposed to a situation where they have to figure out what is actually valuable and then put everything else away. And you know, getting Getting shot at, and same thing goes. You know, if you be in a, a a firefighter, if you're running into a building and that thing is on fire, and you got three other people with you, you don't have time to think about, well, is this guy going to drag me out? Is this guy going to pull slack on the hose? You know that that's not a concern that we have the luxury of having. So, part of me doesn't understand the the current conflicts going on within our our society, and then the other part of me understands it for different reasons that I, I don't like. Yeah, well, it's such an interesting perspective. And I think this something that I've learned as a, you know, a civilian over the years talking to people like Tim Kennedy and, and some of your other fellow special operators is, I think Tim last time kind of broke it down for me that, you know, the Ranger patch is assigned to units that are going to go in and, you know, for lack of a better term, fuck shit up for, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, actually be the the force that's attacking but then you have the green berets which i keep hearing the phrase and i love this phrase because i think the podcast is the same thing which is the force multiplier and i heard um evan hafer who's one of the black rifle founders talking about how if he was king for a day you know it was it was a, a philosophical conversation but they could kind of redo the iraq and um afghanistan conflicts that they would put a lot more special operations green berets in as opposed to these mass forces that are going in obviously we're losing a huge amount to ieds and those kind of areas with you again being another career green beret you know what is your philosophy not saying someone was right or wrong but just your philosophy on the skill set that you guys have and the ability to communicate and the ability to create um you know forces within a nation and, and that's impact on these conflicts versus the way that we ha have done it the last uh, couple of decades that's uh i mean i agree with, with evan in, in a lot of senses the, the military as a whole the way that i i look at it if i want to if i want to capture or destroy if i want to destroy a city you know i send in the air force and bomb the piss out of it 
I want to capture a city, I'm going to send in you know, the 82nd Air. If I want to, you know, destroy or capture a village, I'm going to send in the SEALs. If I want one person for sure dead inside that village, I send in Delta. If I want the village to destroy itself or fight another village, I send in SF. And then if I want to write a book about it, I'm going to send in the SEALs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have quite a few SEAL friends on I like making those jokes with. But in all reality, the, the special operations spectrum is designed for that, the force multiplier. You know, and, and we work hand in hand with, you know, with SEALs and with MARSOC in Africa. I've worked with them in Africa, worked with them in Europe and in Afghanistan. And the, I think the overarching um, theme behind all of it is the, the ability to think. And that is a completely different metric from the conventional military. And, and I say that in how orders are, are derived and sent out. You know, the conventional military starts at the brigade level, the 06 directs down where you're going and what you're doing is to where in special operations, the 06 receives a mission brief from you of what you're going to do. And he relies on the expertise of the detachment of the team that is going there to do something. And when you're dealing with something other than just crossing borders and capturing key terrain, the ability to think within the human domain absolutely reigns king because we don't have we, we could have gone into iraq and afghanistan the exact same way the russians did and kill every military aged male and just hold key strong points and just blow things up however that's not that's not our goal so if you do that you need individuals that have a different mindset to think through problems of what happens if we do this you know i've been on missions where or we've had proposed missions where the thought was to go capture you know, guy X and we didn't do it only because we saw what either who was going to fill the power vacuum if we got him or what would have happened with the local populace if we did take him, whether it be good or bad. And that's a, a thought that is very tough to convey to an E3 saw gunner that is in a, you know, an infantry platoon that he has to think at a, a much higher level. And that's no shot to him or to, to the unit. It's just a difference in, in missions. You don't send, you know, you don't send Green Berets to take the city of Kandahar. We've done it, but that's not our, our primary job. Just like you don't send an infantry platoon to win over a local village elder. That's just not the, the same description of the job. And I believe, you know, and I agree with Evan that the, the difference in mindsets is really where it's at. And I think if special operations would have stayed, I think we would have been out of the war zones quicker. And I believe that we would have seen a far less casualties and a, a much higher success rate in the area. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that insight. Because again, we don't, you know, what do we know? We don't. We really don't. We just get what's fed to us on, on our TV stations. Some, you know, I trust more than others, but they're all still secondhand information. So it's it's great to hear from the boots in the ground and that kind of, as you said, the, the, the more, uh, 360 degree way of thinking, which I, I can relate to a lot in the fire service. You know, we have, we have people who are in great positions that trust their teams that again allow the people in the structure fire, cutting the person out of the car, working the, the MCI, whatever it is to feed information and they trust them. And then you have that micromanaging element in the, you know, the fire service where you are told exactly what and when to do something, which creates a complete cluster and a complete lack of trust. So it's an interesting parallel within our professions as well. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I spoke to a, you know, a mutual friend of Scott about similar things with this within you know his profession as a, being a firefighter. And uh, there's there's times and places for conventional by the book. This needs to happen, and then there's a, a time and place for well, we don't quite have the right answer written down. So let's let's figure it out. Absolutely. Well, one more area I want to get to before we talk about, you know, the kind of journey, the, the people that you lost, and then, you know, what led you to your own path to creating the nonprofit. Um, again, feel free to answer this any way you want. Me personally, James Gearing's philosophy, from all the things that I've seen, you can reverse engineer a lot of our issues to some very basic key um nuclei that then create this ripple effect to a lot of the problems that we're seeing at the moment. One of the things that I've learned while doing this myself through through my family, ironically, and then I educated myself and then found the root of it was the drug prohibition. Um, so seeing the the addicts of the world, whether it's here, the UK, Australia, thrown into prison, seeing the power given to the the shitbags of the world, because we've driven that issue into the shadows, I see as a paramedic, as a firefighter, the death and destruction, the overdoses, the gang shootings, all these things, the police officers that are murdered. So what has been interesting, when I first started the, the podcast and I asked people about, um, you know, drugs and terrorism and, you know, is that funding it? At first, there was a kind of like a wall and I didn't get any kind of conversation at all. But then interesting in the last couple of years a lot of the guests have said no absolutely we see now you know the illicit drug trade is directly funding the terrorism that we're seeing you know both domestically and abroad so i know it's a huge kind of <laughs> prequel to a question but through your eyes especially being in in the green berets you know what have you witnessed as far as the illicit drug trade and that being a a uh that funding a lot of the issues that you guys are dealing with, either, you know, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever you're deployed? You know, we've, we've come upon alleys of, of opium, massive quantities that you couldn't hope to, to reasonably destroy without major ordinance. And it, it comes to a really weird position. It's one thing if you walk into a courtyard and you see, you know, eight or, or 10 plants because that, who does that hurt? But if you walk into a valley, you have to go down two different lines of, if we destroy this, how do these people make money? You know, obviously they're funding in some portions as we've seen terrorism, whether it be locally or abroad, but also, you know, especially in Afghanistan, there's not many ways for people to make money on a larger scale outside of of opium you know there's there's the ability to mine however that's a a trade that is is fairly lost on the afghan people due to russian influence you know when they they came in and they bombed in the the 70s their their main targets were you know what we would call or what we did refer to as military age males and when you wipe out all of the working males, you lose the institutional knowledge based on the jobs that they did. And then being a society that women stayed home and men did the work, when you kill the people doing the work, you lose the knowledge that goes with it. So they don't have nearly the infrastructure or knowledge to mine. So it really comes down to the opium trade. At least that's the way that that I look at it. And finding an acceptable replacement for that 
gives decision makers pause. Because if we're not trying to, if we're trying to build the country, we have to find replacements. And then what those drugs are fun, you know, are, are funding really gets gets tied into, well, how much are we willing to do? So to find a, a true solution for it is, it's tough because we're dealing with, you know, apples and, you know, baseball caps when it comes to, to culture and beliefs. And we can't force democracy on other people or, or capitalism or, or however we, we want to make their system look, which again, the keyword there is we want to make their system look that way. So erasing such a large portion of their economy in a failed swoop, I, I think would, would do more harm to their country would probably create more enemies, ties it into a, a longer war because now you've got the general populace, not the fanatical populace, angry with us. So it's probably one of the more complex problems that we have to deal with in that that region, just given there isn't many opportunities to do something outside of it and be profitable. Yeah. We see it's such a fascinating view because initially we're thinking it's an Afghani view. I, I disagree. I think it's a Western view, a Western problem. Sorry, we are at the root because we are the consumers. So by creating this illicit drug trade, we've created this huge demand for opium, for illegal marijuana from, you know, from fentanyl, from China, from all these different places versus if we actually decriminalize addiction and put it back in the hands of you know, the medical community dealing with mental, you know, and, and addiction issues, then you take away the supply, you cut the head off the snake, and then maybe it's almonds or coffee or, or vineyards that end up starting to replace the poppies. So, I mean, I, it's just so interesting to me to get all these different perspectives because I'm sitting in a chair in the middle of the state of Florida right now. I don't know what's going on in Afghanistan, but I do see the ripple effect of addiction. I also see, which is fascinating and, and heartbreaking in a way, a lot of our men and women in the first responder and military professions that are unable to get some very, very effective treatments for TBI and PTSD through psilocybin, MDMA-led counseling because it's illegal in our country, the one that their friends died for. And they have to go to Mexico, to Panama, to wherever to get the very treatment that will actually heal them for them fighting for their country. So getting all these different perspectives, I think it educates me. I hope it educates the the audience on... If we reverse engineer, if we go back to even why drugs were made illegal in the first place, which is a awful story of you know the failure of alcohol prohibition and and inherent racism, basically, the death and destruction that I've seen at home through my own eyes as a first responder would a hundred percent hands down be you know improved greatly. But the more of this story we're told through all these different eyes the more of an idea we can get, the more we can actually understand it and hopefully push to a more proactive approach. Portugal is a, a great example when you're talking about decriminalizing and the, the numbers they've seen drop. But there's a lot of social change that, that happened within of, of job creations and, and government uh, welfare programs to, to help those seeking help or, or professions. And uh, I think the problem is immaturity of our our country we're, we're we're really locked into if you don't agree with me then i absolutely can't agree with anything that that you say no matter what you know we can disagree on the color of the sky just based on our political views for some reason but the the way that portugal did it 
granted on a much smaller scale is a, is a really interesting study to look at and in social engineering, if you will, because really it comes down to that. You want your population to change its habits where we have to engineer a situation for it to, to happen. And as far as a, a full scale us, I don't know if our country is at a mature enough place to have a, dis- a, a real discussion to do that. I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I actually sat down with Zhao Gulao in Lisbon, in Portugal, the guy who spearheaded Portugal's decriminalization. So it was an, an amazing conversation. I got to see it firsthand. I got to see his center where they process addicts. I say process, it sounds like a, an aggressive word, where addicts are, are interviewed and then basically educated on all the options they have to overcome their addiction and you know, job creation and all that stuff. And then the safe, you know, um, injection sites and places they have so that if you are an addict and you're still trying to get through it, then you don't overdose on the street. You know, you, you are watched and you take medical grade, whatever it is at a certain dose. And then, you know, you go on your way. So, but I agree a hundred percent. I think it's funny. Portugal's viewed almost like a third world country by Europe. But when you look at some of their policies that they've done, they are incredibly progressive and probably because they're a bunch of, you know, salt of the earth farmers that, you know, <laughs> don't get on their high horse about politics and they understand the health of the nation is the number one thing. Yeah, the thing that, that binds us together. You know, I when I, when I look at that, that particular situation in drugs in America, you look at, take, I believe it's uh, Oregon. They, uh, they offer free free needles for you to, to overdose. And I don't know enough about the situation to say if that's the right answer or not. Because on one hand, you can make the argument that, hey, you're just feeding their habit. You're providing them the means and by which to do it. But on the other hand, you can also make the argument that, well, if we provide a safe location for them to do this, and we know they're going to do it anyways – we cut down on uh, the hepatitis and uh, the transmission of AIDS within the, the population, and we can identify who does it. So which, which answer is, is correct, you know, is, is the tough thing to argue when you have two points that can, can be argued from a, a valid standpoint. And that's, uh, that's why I don't think we're mature enough as a country to sit down and, and look at this, you know, pragmatically and say this is probably going to work the best. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's a tough challenge. I mean, how can't even get people to talk about obesity a year after COVID. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, 70% of our population is overweight or obese. So I think that would be a pretty easy conversation to have. But God forbid you, you talk about, you know, anything to do with underlying health conditions and you're a heretic. Mm, yeah, well, I think that's the, the thing that I looked at with our COVID happened. And if you listen to General Odierno's speech, he gave a TED talk that talked about obesity problems within our country. And I forget the time frame he said, but it was in 15 to 20 years, I believe, that we won't have enough people to sustain our military due to health reasons. Um, they won't be able to pass basic physical standards to just get in the military. That's scary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially as I think this is supposed to be the first generation they think their parents might outlive their kids, which is heartbreaking. But you see, you know, I work as a kind of side hustle um, in a theme park doing a stunt show. And, you know, you, you see these families that are geographically from all over the developed world. Anyone can afford a plane and, you know, and a theme park ticket can go there. And it is heartbreaking. These kids are, you know, 
morbidly obese some of them a lot of them overweight their posture is horrendous so you know that's just gonna you know decline and and yeah and you imagine then having to pass a pt test and god forbid some sort of you know higher level fire police special operations you know training there's there's no way in hell and that pool i think even tim kennedy was talking about that pool is getting smaller and smaller and smaller yeah it really is you the not that our contributions are going to change drastically in the world, but uh, a policy that we, that my wife and I have in our, our household is you know, electronics are, it's a privilege within our household. You know, we, we know a lot of people that have kids that sit in the house all day and they're on their, their tablets or their gaming systems or, or whatnot. And to kind of alleviate that, we moved out of town. And we purchased a couple acres. We bought some horses and I built a dirt bike track in the backyard. And the kids spend, as long as it's not snowing, um, spend the majority of their time either outside helping with chores with the horses or, you know, my son splits wood for that's, you know, his main chore that he has to do. We have a wood burning stove in the house. Or um, they fire up the dirt bikes and, and rip around. And we believe that finding healthy habits young will lead to better habits later. If you don't know how to do anything physically when you're young because you've been sucked into playing Call of Duty and watching YouTube, it's much harder to get the drive to go learn something new as you get older. That's just true for all of us. Learning things outside of our comfort zone as we get older is a much more difficult thing to do. So we're trying to build habits into our children of physical activities before they're out and on their own to do you know, to be sucked into those habits, you know, even more so by their friends. Yeah. Well, I had a guy, um, Passy Salberg, who's from Finland. And that, you know, when you look at the rankings of schools, the Finland's nearly, nearly always number one. And the only thing they do differently is they look at the child holistically. So they look at the health, they look at the nutrition, they look at the mental health, you know, and they're not doing standardized testing either. But, you know, by setting, by teaching these young men and women, these, these, you know, these little innocents, these these basic life patterns you're setting them up for failure but the sad thing is by doing the tablets and the fast food and all that stuff you are literally putting them on the rails towards you know disease and, and mental health issues mm -hmm. yeah it's absolutely true and uh, we're, we're creatures of habit you know i think I, I read that by age seven your brain has taken a big enough snapshot of your surroundings and start uh, and has determined what you're going to be doing it starts cutting synapses within your brain that you know say take if you you live in the midwest and you don't you're not around people that speak a foreign language your brain at around that time says well you're not going to have to speak anything other than what you're currently speaking so we're going to take away lingual synapses and i, I felt that firsthand when i got to the the qualification course and had to learn russian man that was a rough me compared to guys who who grew up in Southern Texas and were, were fluent in Spanish as well as English. And then they were learning a third language. It came really easy to them. So I, I don't see why the same theory or, or principle can't be applied to physicality and mindset of a child compared to an adult. If your body thinks that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life, how hard is that to change? Yeah, no, exactly. There's a great quote and I forget about it. And I think it's, it's easier to, to god i think raise raise kind children than the fix broken men or something like that but it's 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 a very powerful 
quote, but it's exactly that. Like they are the blank canvas, you know, they are the, the, the unmolded clay. But once you kind of, you mold it and it sets, it's so much harder to change it then. And like you said, I think that's the problem with a lot of our belief systems is you've been raised in a Republican household or a Democrat household. And it's like, here's your enemies. Here's who you like. Here's who you don't like. And so the inner, you kind of lose the ability to just take a step back and go, yeah, but what's the, what's the, what's the nucleus of this? What are we actually caring about? You know, the people's health, the protection, the education. And that gets lost in the, again, the, the, the polarizing element of shaping our children to follow a certain political path as well. Yeah. And that the ability to just to have, Hey, you have a different viewpoint than I do. I, I kind of want to know why. And. That's a, a question that we don't ask anymore. Everything now you get on YouTube, rarely do you find, you know, full length lectures. You find a lot of narrations and you find the, the Q and A portion where somebody is either trying to send a gotcha question to the speaker or the speaker comes back to the question and absolutely shuts them down for something. And that's what people key in on. And that, I think that leads to our, our, the way that we converse with each other about these hot button issues. It's rarely ever, well, let me understand your, your position. It is, well, this is my position and you need to change yours to meet mine, which is the, that's not the art of debate. That's not a civil conversation. And the more and more that we move away from that and the more that we don't teach our children to, to sit down and have discussions, the, the more we're going to continue down this path. And I don't know where we're going with it, but it doesn't look good to, to continue that way if you can't talk to the other side. 100%. 100%. Well, I want to kind of lead you through to where, you know, you ended up forming um, Green Beret Racing. So you, you, we, we, before we start recording, you touched on the fact, and it says on, on your website that the Green Berets themselves, the, the casualty was, was one of the highest, you know, when at the height of the war, as it were, the, the most combat that, that we'd seen. So kind of lead me through, if you don't mind, those statistics and then you losing your friends and then your own kind of mental health struggles after that. And then we'll walk through to, to starting the nonprofit. So the, uh, I'll start back a little bit uh, before I became Green Bray. And towards the tail end of that deployment in Iraq, uh, we had been there for 15 months at that point. And we had a, a rotation built into our squads. And the rotation as such you get a day off and then everybody in the squad would get the next day off you know so on and so forth until it came back around to you um, uh, this this particular day uh, it happened to be um, October 30th 2006 I was it was my particular day off you know I had four other people that had the day off with me from the platoon and we're, we're sitting around you really have nothing to do but it's just a good break you know, you've been there for so stinking long and you're out, it's Baghdad, it's hot. And um, we got a call over the radio that we had uh, we just lost somebody. And the, the one thing that I, I truly, I, I love about the military is that in a time of crisis, ego and rank generally go out the window. It is what needs to be done now. And I've I've been a part of this loading casualties onto a vehicle and I've yelled at a, a lieutenant colonel to get out of the way or help. And instead of him chewing me out, he started helping. Um, so seeing situations like that occurred this day, you know, um, found out we had somebody was killed. So the four of us that were back immediately start making preparations to, uh, to receive the platoon back. 
because uh, we had no clue who it was. We don't generally don't say who the casualty is over the radio. That's for a, a mental reason within the force. You know, if you find out that your best friend was just killed, it changes how you look at the mission, either for a good way or a bad way for you or the platoon. If you're distracted thinking about your friend, your buddies could get killed. If you're angry, you could take it out and make the situation even worse by killing innocents or whatnot. So generally, it's a practice that we don't say the name over the radio. So we were in the complete, you know, we were in the dark. So finally, the um, platoon comes back and, and it turns out it was uh, a guy from a different platoon, but it was one of my really close friends. We were uh, workout buddies. He'd, uh, he'd walked into a room after they had cleared to check on something. And somehow a guy that they had detained had gotten back in that room, grabbed a rifle and then had shot him. So um, we were prepping everything you know, getting his equipment unloaded, you know, we're going through the stuff that's already been taken off of them because the military is very matter of a fact that, that you have to grab his stuff and box it up before it sits too long. Cause there are sadly, there are people of opportunity that will be like, Oh, Hey, I let so-and-so borrow this. I'm going to get this back or whatnot. They don't, they don't let that happen. So we're going through his stuff and we're, you know, it's obviously a very emotional point. And then the, um, the first sergeant asked, you know, hey, who wants to be a part of his his memorial service, which was scheduled to be four days later. And, uh, you know, being a close friend of mine, I absolutely wanted to be a part of it. You know, I, I, I wanted to let his platoon have the run of the run of the way. You know, you guys, this is your platoon. This is your loss. You know, I'm I'm close friends with him, but obviously it's not my platoon. So I didn't feel right stepping in. Um, so they let me lead. the. They said I could run the firing squad. And I went back to my squad in my own platoon and asked, I said, Hey, who has the day off, you know, three days from now when Craig's, uh, Craig's memorial was And a, a buddy of mine, by the name of James, James Lee Douglas Bridges said he would, uh, he would, Hey, you could take my spot your next day off. I'll just take yours and we'll, we'll flip. Wasn't even a, a second thought for him. So as it is with the military, the, the mission has to keep rolling. So his platoon was told to stand down the day of his memorial. I'm there. We go through the firing squad, very emotional, very well done ceremony. And, uh, we get back and I find out that, um, my platoon ended up taking a casualty that day and it was James. And he, uh, he invoked a rule that we, it's kind of an unspoken rule, but if I'm taking somebody's place, then I take their spot. And since I'm not of, of average size, I generally took what we call the air guard hatch in these vehicles. You know, it's the, the rear of the vehicle has two hatches, one on either side that we would have somebody standing out of that would be watching side streets and would be a kind of a secondary set of eyes for the driver, for the gunner, for the vehicle commander. And the, because I was, Paul didn't fit the vehicle very well. I almost always took one of those hatches. Well, that's what he did is he took the hatch that I generally sat in and he was killed by a sniper that day. And that was, that was something that it took me a long time to come to grips with. You know, I, I buried that, you know, we, we did his, his service on my way to the Q course. I went and visited his family and it, it took me 10 years to come to the grips that this man selflessly gave up his spot so that I could selfishly go to another place uh, and, you know, pay respects to a friend of mine. And it wasn't a random 
you know, it wasn't an IED that just happened to get him. You know, it was one bullet from one sniper that that got him. And had I been there that day, you know, that would have been me. You know, without a, beyond the shadow of a doubt, this was a notorious sniper in our area that they um, they ended up catching later. He had, he was he changed a lot of our our methods about stuff, how we hung out in air guards, hatches, um, how much camel was applied, how long we stood up. Like he definitely changed, but he got he got James. And you know, I when I recount that story to people, you know, I I really emphasize that that James selflessly gave his life for me that day. Because had it not been for him, that would have been me. You know, and James would have been off. He was a, a little brother to me. And I, I knew his, his then, his fiance at the time. He said, I've met his parents. I've been to, I've stayed at his house. And um, I buried that pretty hard, in, you know, for about 10 years. And then at one point, I'm, I'm talking to a counselor about my, my crumbling marriage. And he asked me randomly about, you know, what's going on in, in Iraq or what happened in that thing. And the next, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm bawling, didn't realize that I had any of that pent up. And that was, a, I don't want to say it was a frame, but it was an eye opening moment to see how much of that weighed on me at that time and how much it affected my personality. And that happened right around the time I'd lost another friend, um, James, Jim Genus. Uh, he was killed in a training accident. So there's a, there's a lot of that going around in the time. And that ultimately started steering me towards looking at how much affected me versus how much I let people see. You know, I I was taking the the motto, as do many people I work with, uh, the motto of the Green Berets of the the quiet professional, way too seriously. It wasn't quiet. It was silent. And I was sitting back and listening to people talk about getting help. And I... No, that's not me. I got another deployment to go on. I got another school to get to. I got another thing. And fast forward to us finishing that race. And I had just come back from Phoenix and visited a friend of mine that I was on that same trip with. And we're, we're sitting down to a, a local brewery. We're having a beer. And he told me, he was like, yeah, yeah, I went down to the VA. And I made it a joke. You know, I laughed. I was like, what the fuck would you go there for? And, uh, he looked at me deadpan. He's like, you don't get it, do you, man? You're, you're still in, you're still around it. You still have the lifestyle. He's like, I don't work with a single person who is, is a veteran. I don't live in a neighborhood with anybody that's a veteran. I don't have anybody that understands me. And then post race, the, the individual, my, my race partner, the, the vice president of Green Bray Racing, he, um, very he's successful. He has a good family life. He's been retired about a year at that point. And he looked at me and he said, Nick, I didn't know I needed that. So, but that, that was something. And that kind of started us down this road of saying, well, wait a minute. If me, you know, Nick, if I have a, a problem and I keep it held down inside me and I don't let anybody know all just so I can keep going with the missions, you know, we all put back, you know, injuries and, and problems that, you know, I'm not sleeping or I'm, I'm drinking too much or whatever it is, if we can stifle that down to keep going, and then I see it in two of my close friends as well, then what's really going on here? And we, in that, that restaurant at breakfast, we decided at that point to start uh, a racing team, something because the desert racing was the thing that we had just done. We said, well, how about, how do we get guys into this? This obviously is a friend moment. I felt I needed it. You know, he felt he needed it. It was something that both of us, not, you know, we didn't really know that we needed. We were kind of just doing it for fun. And it turned into be a, a very like euphoric 
moment almost. So then we kind of transitioned from there and said, well, hey, man, we, we do other stuff. We're on bikes all the time. Well, how about we get guys into dirt bike and street bike racing? And it kind of cascaded from there into, well, anything that's racing. Well, how about that? So we started talking to guys that of their own fruition run, you know, run marathons or Ironmans or Tough Mudders or Best Rangers or, or whatever. And then we, we expanded to where we are today and we have, uh, we formed officially in November of 2020 and we, we now have 21 athletes and 11 sports, nine states, two countries with the vast majority being active duty. We cover everything from, I have an amputee uh, by the name of Luke that does Ironmans. He's getting ready to do one at the end of the month, the 70.3 down in Florida. Uh, we have a, yeah. Uh, amazing story on, on his part. He was a 10th group guy as well. We have a guy that's qualified for the Boston Marathon. We have guys that shoot three gun. Uh, I recently got a, a sponsorship through Moya to help out with our um, our combatives team. So we have uh, everything from a black belt jujitsu guy to guys that fight in Tokyo doing jujitsu. And the whole premise of this whole thing, and I think that makes us different is we're not an organization that looks and says, well, what am, what am I, the founder of this, really good at? And then I'm hoping people take, you know, take that, that flag up as well. Instead, I'm looking at people and saying, I'm investing in you. You tell me what you're good at so or what you're interested in. And it's done in, in two parts. So the first part is individuals that currently do this sport already, whatever their, their sport is, you know, drag racing, for instance. And I come to them and I say, hey, I can't offer you a lot of money right now. We're pretty new. Um, I said, but I, I have contacts through the, the networks where I can, I can get you fuel injectors and fuel pumps and I can work on getting you tires and I can provide all your lubricants, but I require two things of you. The first one is you be a good ambassador for us somebody that talks about the, the benefits of doing something outside the team room. And the second portion of that is provide me with some content that I can put on the social media page to show what we're doing. And overwhelmingly, guys, guys agree. And these are people that already know that they need that hobby. And the, the thing is, I'm sure you've talked to, to previous guys and kind of realized is that the operations tempo for special operations is really high. You know, we spend most of the most of the year gone for training, uh, getting ready for the next deployment. We put so many things off that it's my personal belief that guys will sacrifice personally to grow professionally. But when that dream goes away, when they have to leave the detachment for whatever the reason is, whether it be physical, you know, something is happening emotionally, it's just their time to leave that they haven't found out who they are yet. And they're stuck in this this position of, I don't have my friends, you know, I, the, you know, I'm not going to the same team room every time and seeing my friends. I don't have the same purpose now and I don't know what to do with myself. So we have these initiatives of, you know, team to track or detachment to dojo, as we like to, to say it, where we get our ambassadors in these sports to link up with guys that are currently on detachments and pull them out and remove as many of the excuses that we can for, for monetary and equipment wise and say, no, here's, here's a couple of dirt bikes. Here are guys that race this stuff nearly on a professional level. Let's teach you. And an example of this happened just last month. 
we were, uh, we were at some training and we had some dirt bikes with us and myself and one of the other guys that raced dirt bikes instructed my entire detachment on how to ride dirt bikes. And only one guy had ridden dirt bikes before. And by the end of that trip, one guy purchased a dirt bike on his own and another guy borrowed a dirt bike and all four of us entered a dirt bike race a week and a half after they learned how to ride just to do it. And that's the, the success side of the house because the, the proper investment in an individual is not in what I want. Instead, what it is that keeps a gun or pills out of their mouth or, or a bottle. And that's the heart of Green Beret racing is truly tackling all of the systemic issues that we have in our, our, our current system, whether it be a suicide rate of 39.3 per 100,000, which is nearly double that of the conventional military and much higher than most of our, most anybody that I've ever heard of, our professions I've heard of, whether it be, you know, guys drinking, uh, too much, you know, the, the amount of work that can be put into this that can help your marriage by itself is, is amazing because it gives you purpose that you're not always looking at your significant other and saying, man, I can't wait to deploy again. As much as you feel that, that's probably not the right answer to say to your spouse because that's not the, what she wants to hear or he. So the purpose behind that whole thing is really summed up into that. You know, it, it's finding a what I, what I call transitional consistency, creating a group of guys that have similar experiences, similar drive, harnessing the competition that got them, the competitive mindset that got them into special operations and finding them into something that will transition beyond their time on a detachment. So when they do eventually learn who they are and what their interests are outside of the military or outside of the detachment, they have a group of people to lean on and support them through it. Well, I love the way you framed it, um, you know, uh, sacrificing their preferred personal life. Let me say that again. <laughs> I love the way that you framed it, sacrificing their personal life for their professional life, because that's something that we see in the more aggressive police and fire as well. Like we'll take vacation days because most of the time we won't get, you know, paid to train in a lot of these classes that we have to take or want to take. So we'll literally take our own vacation day, take our own money, go do an extrication class, a ropes class, whatever. And so you know, that money and time could and should have been spent with, with family. But again, we, the way that the fire service and police service is at the moment, a lot of us, if we want to be good at our job, it just, it is what it is. Um, and I think that we suffer in the same way that you guys do, where after a while, you forget that you're a human in a uniform and you start to identify with just that profession. Now you get hurt, you transition out, you, you promote whatever it is that, that identity is kind of lost and you haven't got the rest of the human being, the, the yin and the yang to kind of relate with and, and lean into as you transition out. So getting your men from the Green Berets into these sports where they've got another tribe, another skill set, another passion, and another reason to stay physically and mentally healthy as well. I mean, it, it just seems like a, a great, great way to, to build another co-identity so that when that uniform comes off for whatever reason, you still understand who you are. You know, one of the you, you said it, you know, they're identifying with their, their job. And I, I found that going through my divorce, that my identity was held very heavily in my job. You know, I was almost felt like I would describe myself as a green bright first. And that is very problematic when 
you're no longer doing that job. Now, I've been lucky enough that I haven't had any breaks. I'll call it lucky. Some, you know, in some ways, it's probably not. But I've been able to stay on a detachment for nearly 12 straight years now. And I haven't had to go through that transition yet of I'm not operational anymore. And that's where we see a lot of suicides tend to happen is very rarely, I shouldn't say very rarely, not as common do they happen when they're on a detachment. They generally happen when they're off. And if an individual holds his identity as his job, well, then of course he's going to have problems when he leaves that team. I, I personally believe now, you know, years later, that being a Green Beret is an amplification of my character, not a defining character of it. And getting other people to understand that, that, yeah, you're a Green Beret, but you're more than that. What else do you have to offer is something that when that light bulb clicks, you see these guys not just dive into other things, you know, whether it be racing you know, with some form of motorsports or competitive type sports, but you see them tend to dive more into a, a more professional pursuit of their job, but in a holistic way. They stop looking at, well, maybe I'm just going to go to the gym and lift more weights than everybody and instead start looking at the, the professional development things that will be a better benefit to the team. You know, the, the higher level skills that they need to go, whether it be in planning or intel or whatnot, they tend to seek these now with this different understanding that I'm not just here because I'm a Green Beret. I'm here because I provide more to the team than what I previously did, or that's my, my, you know, how I seek that out. And I, I can describe that through a, a friend of mine. Uh, he's a, an above the knee amputee in fifth group, fifth group currently, you know, monster of a, an individual. And we had, uh, we did the course together and I remember asking him, I was like, well, how do you, how do you justify you know, you, you know, you don't have a leg now. Like, how are you driving forward on a team? How are you, you know, saying that you're there? And he said, you know, it took a lot of, a lot of pain, but I made myself smart to make up for my lack of physicality. And that was a, an understanding that, that comes from maturity, from anguish, from pain, and looking at a situation and saying, how do I make this better? And if we can't sit down and get somebody to understand that, to find things outside of their current profession, whether it be police and fire, because the suicide rates within those professions are very high as well, and say, how do I do something that develops me and provides for my current profession, for my detachment, then I really think we're, we're putting emphasis on things that we don't need to. Yeah, well, another through line that I've kind of noticed again from all these conversations, and, it, and it, I saw it in myself. I, my, my ego struggled a little bit when I transitioned out of the fire service. I volunteered for a bit because I still wanted to be wearing the uniform and then, you know, kind of had a, a realization that I wasn't, I was playing the part now. But the mission is the same. Like if, if you can find an, another mission that carries on that same purpose that you had that drove you into the military that made you chase being the best version of yourself while you were you know in the army and in the, in the fire service whatever it was and then find another purpose again 
it's incredibly healing for you and it's a great place to make that transition easier. So for me, obviously now I'm, I'm, I'm traveling, I'm training with people, I'm doing these conversations. I wrote a book. I mean, all these different areas, but the mission is the same. I saw people dying as a firefighter. I saw my friends dying as a firefighter. I want to fix it. You know, I did then and I still do now. Ryan Parrott, Navy SEAL that came out of the, the SEAL teams and now has an incredible burn foundation called Sons of the Flag. What you're doing with Green Beret Racing. So I think that that's another huge lesson is, just because you take off the clothing, and that's all it is at the end of the day, is a piece of material that you hang on your shoulders, doesn't mean that that purpose that you had, that desire to make the world better, stops the day you, you know, get your discharge, discharge papers or you retire. So if you can find that next thing, you know, you're doing racing and you do some, some fundraisers with, fundraisers, excuse me, fundraisers with your racing. You mentor young people through your racing. It's the exact same purpose. And I think just reframing that, is a, a very healing way of understanding that you didn't stop being a soldier. You continued being the the protector in the community that you were previous to the to the military, during the military, and then obviously into retirement or transition. Yeah. You know, if you look at take just firefighting, for instance, in terms of the the job set, it isn't always rush into a burning building. There are, and that's obviously what firefighters get the most credit for because most people don't want to run into a building that's on fire. You know, present company included. If I have to, I will, but that's generally not on my, you know, my daily checkoff list when I wake up. However, the, the switch between, you know, that and extrication and then going and, and helping out with EMS and fire or uh, you know, car support or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, or even just checking alarms, uh, the missions are very different. But the, the purpose you put behind it is the same. And I think you're absolutely spot on when you say we should take these individuals and have that same understanding of purpose, but just put a different, you know, a different font on it, if you will, and saying, hey, how about instead of rushing into a house to, you know, shoot and, you know, shoot all the bad guys and clear it and, you know, say objective clear, objective secure, then how about we do this and say, how about we, we put this towards your buddies? How about you rush out there and find all your buddies that you can and bring them into this so that that's your new objective. That's what we're securing and, and get them to do stuff. And it, it cascades and goes. And then the number of Green Berets that I've spoken to that have both confided in me and, and openly said it in forums that there's something that they're seeking, but they don't know what it is. That's what I hope to find with, with the race team. And whether it be through their racing, I had... One individual was talking to me saying that he was feeling a lot of stress, a lot of burden. You know, he didn't know how to really get it out. And we ended up talking about uh, desert racing and getting him into a pit to work on trophy trucks. And he uh, right there in that conversation, you could hear a different uh, a change in his voice. And he, uh, he told me, he's like, I just cleared my schedule. You tell me the day that I need to be there and I'm going to be there and I'll put everything else off because I need something to do. And that's. That's a, that's a great self-reflection to, to understand that you need to find things outside of what we're doing, but finding the vessel by which to, to do that is, is I think where people get a little scared. You know, why am I going to leave my comfort zone? I, I know how to shoot a gun and I know how to speak a foreign language. And if it isn't that, then, then what am I doing? And learning those new skills and having that drive to do it, I think is really something that, that guys in, in high adrenaline professions need. 
you know, we can't all just sit around a fire and talk. That works for some people. For me, I, I'm too antsy. I, I have to do stuff. If I'm sitting there around a fire talking, I'm, I'm going to get up and, and walk away, not for fear of exposing my emotions, but I, I want to do stuff with my hands. I want to go. I want to you know, feel things. So let's go. So that's, that's really what we're trying to get at. Beautiful. Well, for people listening, if they want to learn more about it or even donate, where are the best places for them to go? You can find us at greenberetracing.org or we're on Instagram and Facebook. And over there, same, at Green Beret Racing. And then as far as in-person events, we have one May 1st in Pinehurst, North Carolina. We're going to be drag racing golf carts at the, uh, at the track there. we got Richard Petty coming out. There's going to be barbecue, beer, first outdoor sanctioned event by Moore County. And then July 3rd, uh, Green Beret for a day down at Buck and Doe's in San Antonio, Texas. You're going to be able to come out uh, and you can donate. There's going to be raffles. You're going to be able to go to the indoor shooting range and we'll have Green Berets on site to help you um, help you shoot, learn any pointers you want. And then October 3rd in San Antonio as well, we have a uh, bearded cup shooting competition where we're going to remove the ability to buy the competition and provide all of your weapons for you in a staged shooting event that will force you to use Kentucky windage and adjust um, your gun. So nothing's going to be zeroed. You're going to have 50 rounds to figure out where the gun hits, can't touch your sights. And then you're going to go through a course of event and do as they say to green berets quite a bit, figure it out. Love it. Well, actually my in-laws live in San Antonio, so that's probably where I'm going to finally get to see you there. I'll, I'll try and get to that one. Absolutely. Yeah. If you come on down, you'll meet quite a few of us. Fantastic. All right. Well then transitioning to some closing questions. The first one I love to ask is there a book that or books that you love to recommend? And it can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, probably two, two right now. The, the first one is it's called The, the One Thing. Um, uh, the name who wrote it uh, skips me. Both books of who wrote it skips me. But that one is all about finding something to focus on. You know, we very often mistake you know, activity with progress. And without a defined goal, you can do everything you want, but it doesn't mean that you're getting closer to anything that's meaningful. So in that, that book, it definitely tries to highlight set goals and towards those goals. And if what you're doing doesn't actually go towards that goal, put it on the back burner. Um, and then the, uh, the second one is called Rework. It's a, um, another business book, but it, it talks about very simple principles of how to Organize your life and do things that are fruitful and and quick. So it, it's easy to look at building a business. You know, it's Green Beret Racing is a very daunting task, but figuring out what needs to be done to get things moving and then take it every step from there. You know, a half-ass. I think uh, Patton said a a half-ass plan executed with violence now is better than a perfect plan executed in two weeks. So kind of that removing the hesitation about doing things that scare you or that you're hesitant to because it might not work. That's, that's kind of the goal of those two books. Beautiful. I don't think I've had either of those recommended. So thank you. Um, what about a movie and or a documentary? Um, hmm. Um, the, uh, was it the social experiment? I, I believe the, it's a Netflix documentary that talks about how algorithms within social media 
are directing the way that we look at news and what news that we get and create echo chambers within our life. And it's a, it's a great way to look at how you interact on your social platform and the friends that you interact with. Cause it's really easy as our previous conversation um, alluded to, to cut people out of your life that don't share the exact same values as of you. And then that further solidifies your, your opinion, whether or not it's right. And then the algorithms within that, the, the social media platforms that will feed you as documented on there will feed you news, regardless if it's, uh, if it's correct or not leading you to believe things that might not necessarily be true. Yeah, it was an amazing documentary. I think what made it so powerful was a lot of the people speaking on there were some of the original, you know, founders or uh, programmers of a lot of these platforms that we're familiar with. Yeah, they weren't just conspiracy theorists where you're like, okay, that guy, I don't know if I trust him, but you're having legit execs from these major companies come forward and say, no, I designed this. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Um, next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, Nick Lavery, for sure. He's uh, the buddy that I referenced that was an amputee, or that is an amputee. He has a hell of a powerful story. He's a very impactful speaker, and his mindset is one that I think Every time, and I, I told him this in a previous conversation, every time I'm getting ready to talk to him, I, it forces me to make sure that I've crossed my T's and my I's because he's so driven and so passionate that I don't want to come up short when I'm telling him about the things that I'm working on or the things that we're collaborating on. Beautiful. We sounds amazing. So let's definitely make that happen. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then uh, the next question I have, I want to just pause for a moment because one thing I didn't ask you, and I think it's an important thing that we, we get before we move on, you mentioned about struggling with, you know, basically survivor's guilt from losing uh, James and then, you know, obviously the people that you lost before and after that as well. And you mentioned about starting up the the racing project. What about you personally? You know, where where was your absolute lowest? And then what were the tools that you, Nick, used to get yourself back out of that? Uh, yeah, I referenced this a little bit, talking about making the, uh, the decisions to, that only I can truly affect or have the most and, you know, at, at that point in my my life, I had ruptured my L4, L5 disc in my back. Um, so my, as I had said before, my, my physicality where I held a lot of my identity wasn't there anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't lift what I was lifting. You know, I, I wasn't able to carry and, and really do what I had built my reputation on. And then going through a divorce at the same time, my daughters uh, were with my now ex living down in Texas. So I had lost everything that I had truly held my identity in. You know, I wasn't the green beret that I used to be. I wasn't the father that I could be. And I wasn't the husband that I thought I was. And it put me at this place where I'm waking up in beer bottles. And I was, I was viewing successes through the lenses of previous achievements. And the problem with that is I wasn't able to reach the success the levels of success that I previously was. So no matter how, how well I did in a situation, it was never going to be good enough. And it was just this continual cycle of self-deprivation that was heading, spiraling me down. And, and I tell people, you know, I, it, it took me to a place where I, I never real, you know, honestly 
considered putting a, a gun in my mouth, but I was in a place where a couple more, um, a couple more setbacks and, and I could see where somebody would go there, you know, and it changed how I looked at suicide, you know, realistically. And, you know, it's easy to look at somebody when you're, you're on top of a mountain and they just committed suicide to say like, I would never do that. But I was, I was in a situation in a low point that I, I was getting there. I, I definitely, I, I could have been there. I could have been one of those statistics and coming out of it, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, it's, I, I was, I was driving back from Texas. I had just dropped my daughters off and I, it's about a, depending on how fast you're driving, a 12 to 15 hour drive from San Antonio back to Colorado Springs. And I'm in West Texas. I'm a couple hours into the drive and I'm, I'm a mess because I have divorce papers sitting, you know, waiting for my signature sitting in the passenger seat. You know, I just left my daughters and if, if you're ever around me, I'm a, I'm a passionate father. I, I love my daughters. The reason I got back surgery, um, I was able to, I was taking nine pills at one time per day to, uh, to make it through the day with this, this ruptured disc. I was getting dry needles and grassed and done and nothing was, was really fixing anything. And I did two deployments during that time when I had a, a ruptured disc and my team, you know, gratefully took up a lot of my burden, but I was too ignorant to slow down and, and say, guys, I need to take a step back. So, um, I remember coming home one day and my back was absolutely killing me. And my daughters came up to me and asked if I wanted to go in the back and jump on a trampoline. And I made a promise to myself that I would never say no to them, even if it's five minutes, because I'm gone too much to have that, you know, that, um, that the comfort of being able to say, well, we can just do it tomorrow. And I told them no. And it resonated because it was a promise. It was a conversation I'd had with myself. And that actually got me to go get surgery, not my job, oddly enough. So, you know, flash forward to, you know, I'm in the car, I get the divorce papers next to me and this <laughs> workout music comes on. And it was actually Rob Bailey and the hustle standard. And he, uh, he has a song where there's a preamble leading into it. He goes, you know, I did the nine to five. I had the house, I had the dog, you know, I had, I had everything that you're supposed to do. And I always thought this feels fucking stupid. And that for some reason resonated with me. And I, I thought back to it, you know, I, I have the medals, I have the job, I have the deployment. I had the life that I was told I was supposed to have. And I never felt fulfilled. And whether that be from past trauma, whether it be childhood or at war, but I never felt fulfilled. I always thought, well, the next deployment, the next school, the next accolade is what's going to do it for me. And in that moment, I realized that those accolades are not what actually make me happy. And I had a hard conversation with myself for the rest of that drive. And that's where I developed those four goals. And I, I said to myself, I can become a statistic. And I can become what everybody would expect me to be, which is just the, the has been, you know, that's, that's on a team that doesn't get promoted anymore. He's just curmudgeoned and angry at the world and relegate myself to a life of, well, I used to be, and that didn't sit well with me. So I instead made those goals and kind of made myself a, you know, a four step plan or 12 step plan or, or however you want to look at it to, to overcome 
that adversity and, and say, what am I going to do with this situation instead of letting the situation do something with me? Beautiful. Well, I can relate very, very, you know, directly because I actually wrote about it in my book. I had a near career ending back injury right when I was going through my divorce and I was a single dad and that inability to even pick up my son was physically excruciating and mentally excruciating. And I never got to the lowest of low places, but like you, I mean, it was definitely a level of depression and frustration and guilt, you know, and shame that certainly, just like you said, if they'd added a few more ingredients there, who knows? Um, but, you know, I was very fortunate that my, I was actually able to rehab my injury using a thing called foundation training. If you've never heard of that, an amazing back health practice, whether you're hurt, whether you're just trying to prevent it, but, you know, it undoes a lot of the damage of, of sitting and some of the other trauma that we go through. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's so good to hear that. And, and it's, it's so sad to hear that, but these are the real life stories and, and an injury can, it obviously hurts, but I don't think people understand the mental toll, especially when your identity is challenged and you're taken away from your tribe. Yeah, very much so. It's, it's very true. And it's funny the the way that we look at the injury as, oh, well, he's fine. You know, he'll, he'll get some rehab and he'll be back. But like you said, there's a lot more to it when your identity is held in your profession and you can't do your profession to the level. There's you call it ego, call it pride, call it whatever you will, but when you're not a, allowed or capable, I should say capable, to do things at the level that you're accustomed to doing because of something with you, that's a that's a big mental problem. It's one thing to yell at command and be like, man, this is dumb, they won't let us do this, but you still have the ability. But when it's you, that's a completely different you know mental mindset that you have to overcome. Absolutely. Well, one of the, the final closing questions what do you do to decompress now? What are some of the tools you use today? That is a hundred percent get on two wheels and go rip around. That is, that's a conversation that I had with, with my wife that I, I offer to people as if I have any wisdom in this world, I think I, it's held in this, this particular situation. I asked her, what do you want to do that will make you happy? that you don't need me for, but I can support you. And that ultimately led to our move. You know, she wanted to you know, get horses. She grew up with them. Um, and it's a very a therapeutic thing for her. And she turned and she said the, the same question back to me. And I think my, my response was a little bit more caveman-ish. And I said, I, I want to go fast. And I grew up, uh, when my dad did get custody of me, we did a lot of tinkering on engines, um, a lot of time in the, in the garage working on things and, and having some great conversations. And I, I wanted to get back to that. And shortly after we, um, you know, we bought the house, we moved, you know, I bought another motorcycle cause like I need more, but, um, getting out and disconnecting, you know, I have a, one of my motorcycles is an adventure motorcycle and loading that thing down and heading into the mountains where I don't have signal nobody can call me email me text me i don't have to worry about any kind of social media updates and just kind of let my mind run while while taking in everything that's out there or throwing a helmet on and some some guards and tearing around in the woods is is something that i i find has been really great for both our marriage and for for my mental health beautiful well nick i just want to say thank you um it's always such a 
such a you know powerful perspective to to talk to anyone on here, but especially hold on, let me see that again. My wife's trying to call on the vibrating in the background. Um, well, Nick, I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous with your time and telling your story today. Between you know the the transparency that and the courage it takes to talk about the low times, but also through your lens. I mean, you know, our Green Berets are obviously an elite group of men that get to do and see some incredible things and get to do and see, you know, the, some some leadership qualities that maybe we can absorb in the fire service in our country in general. So I just truly appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast, share, you know, your perspective and also educate us about Green Beret racing. God, I really appreciate the time to, to come on and really use your platform to, to get our message out there. And if anybody reaches out to us and you know, this, this saves life, this gets somebody out there to do something that, that we've done what we've set out to do.